Please turn to Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to talk about the dream that almost became a nightmare. While you're turning, read these sage comments that as we study history, at one level we see progress and improvement, but when we go deeper, we see decay and decline. Thoreau said that America had improved means to unimproved ends. That can be easily said of any developing nation, but we can speak easily to people in almost any part of the world. But do we have anything important to say? We can travel rapidly from one place to another. But we make little progress in solving the problems of war, violence, famine, liberty. While we're grateful for the things that make modern life comfortable and enjoyable, good houses, cars, planes, powerful medicines, electronic devices, we have to admit that each of these brings with it new problems that have to be solved. It's easier to make a living, but harder to make a life. Where is history going? Just like Nebuchadnezzar, we want to know. And Daniel's going to tell us. Now, as I mentioned before in the introduction to the book, Daniel's kind of unique in that it's written actually in two languages, two close and related languages, but they're not the same. That is Hebrew and Aramaic. And uh, it's kind of like the comparison between, say, Dutch and German or something like that. They're very similar languages, but they're not quite the same. Here in chapter 2 is where it's going to switch to Aramaic. And then it'll stay that way all the way through chapter 7, and then in chapter 8 it switches back to Hebrew. Now, why did Daniel do that? Well, in the world of his day, Aramaic was an international language. It was a language that was used for commerce and diplomacy, that sort of thing. And if you wanted to be understood by a large quantity of people, Aramaic was the language to use. Much like English has become in today's world. You have the strange phenomena of Lufthansa pilots speaking English because that's going to be understood in every airport around the world. Even though they're Germans, they will be speaking in English if they want to be understood by the tower. So this is particularly well suited to a Gentile audience. It's not in Hebrew, which would have been focused narrowly on Israel, but rather it's got a broad appeal to the entire world. Now, so we're entering that part of Daniel that has a particular message for the Gentile world. A message, if you will, to the nations. And the first thing Daniel relates to us is about a royal dream of Nebuchadnezzar's. This section really divides pretty neatly into the Nebuchadnezzar part and the Daniel part. You, know, you have a bunch of things happening with Nebuchadnezzar, then you have things happening with Daniel. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. The second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, according to the way the Babylonians numbered it, would actually be what we would call his third year, because they didn't count the partial year when you first become king, or 602 B.C. Those events occurred immediately after the Israeli captives gradua graduation from the Royal Academy and their appointment to royal service. So they were the new guys on the block and not very important at this point. 
King Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him. He couldn't sleep. The um, phrase translated had dreams is literally he dreamed dreams. That plural probably means to us that it was a recurring dream. It didn't just happen once. It was happening over and over. That's, and several translations say that he had many dreams or a series of dreams. And he was troubled by these. They upset him. And so the king summons the classes we've already seen in the first chapter of Daniel that formed the intelligentsia of the Babylonian Empire. And he told them he wanted an understanding of the meaning of this dream. Nebuchadnezzar backed that up with a demand. Okay, in verse 4, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you're bargaining for time inasmuch as you've seen that the command from me is firm. That if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except for God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. The Chaldeans, as I mentioned last time, are the elite ruling class. And they greet the king with this, O king, live forever. Now, of course, they don't think he's going to live forever. But it's about the same as in modern English. Uh, a Britain, somebody uh, in England might say, Long live the king or queen. It's that sort of greeting. And they ask Nebuchadnezzar, Just tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. They probably had volumes on how to interpret dreams. They probably had the complete idiot's guide to interpreting dreams. The, you know, dreams for dummies. They had all these, all these reference books. And all this knowledge, if you'll just tell me your dream, then I'll work through it and I'll tell you what it means. Nebuchadnezzar isn't buying it. By the way, the, from the phrase, they answered the king in Aramaic, from that point on is Aramaic to the end of chapter 7. That was kind of a skillful way to you know, do the transition there. Um, so that you can reach a Gentile audience. Now Nebuchadnezzar said, tell them both the dream and the interpretation. He said that ma the matter from him was firm. Yeah, that's the way New American Standard translates it. It has been misunderstood because this is a loan word and it's not, uh, not very common. It's been misunderstood as gone. I think the King James says the, the thing is gone from me. And a few of the other older translations. That gave rise to the idea that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the dream. 
Okay. And it's, you'll see that title sometime, that subtitle sometime, Nebuchadnezzar's Forgotten Dream. Actually, that's probably a mistranslation. Almost all modern translations translate it something like, the command for me is firm. Or my decision is firm. Or this is what I firmly decided. My word is final. That sort of thing. Not the word has gone from me. But, you know, it's final. Um, it's unlikely, isn't it, that Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream. Consider, if that were the case, if he forgot the dream, how would he know if the Chaldeans were just making something up? He wouldn't know. They could make up anything. Well, dream, you know, oh king, you dreamed about uh, pink clouds and uh, purple polka dotted elephants. And that means you should quit eating pizza before bedtime. Now, you know, that doesn't, they, he, they had no way of knowing if he had forgotten the dream. But he didn't. He remembered it, remembered it very well. So he explains the consequences to them. He's a, Nebuchadnezzar is a master of the carrot and the stick. He's saying on the stick side of things, on the negative side of things, if you don't tell me that dream, I'm having you torn limb from limb. You know? Uh, I don't know whether they literally had a tug of war until your arms came off or whether they were going to take, you know, uh, swords and cut them off or whatever, but it didn't sound pretty. You know? And then on top of it, just for good measure, we're going to turn your house into a garbage heap. Yeah, that's kind of a, a put down. That's the negative. But there's a carrot as well as a stick. He also reward, promises them he's going to reward them greatly if they can only tell him the dream and its interpretation. They ask him for a second time, and that just makes Nebuchadnezzar mad. You know, he correctly says, look, you're stalling. You guys are just stalling. You're hoping I'll change my mind. It's not going to happen. You better tell me this dream. I think Nebuchadnezzar did that for a, a reason. He really shows himself to be a very crafty fellow. He suspects they really don't have these special powers that they're claiming to have. This is kind of like um, a, a Jay Leno comic routine I remember one time where, where he goes, what is this about calling the psychic network? And by the way, in case anybody's concerned, yes, I'm very much against such things. Uh, but the, uh, he said, what is it about calling them? The, the, they answer the phone and they say, hello, who is this? Yeah. He says, don't you know? Aren't you psychic? Yeah. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, yeah, sure, interpret the dream. By the way, tell me the dream. And then I'll know you can interpret it. Well, they're going, we can't do that. They responded, no one could do that. No other king has ever asked such a thing. You hear what they're saying? They might as well be saying, we're charlatans. Out of their own mouth, they're admitting. They haven't got the goods. They can't do it. They can't answer this mystery. They replied, it's too difficult for mortals. And only the gods could answer the king's demand. Well, they're close. They're close. Only God could answer the king's demand. And that's what happens. So, now we move to the decree. The king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. The reply, telling the king, look, king, nobody can do this. You don't tell the king no. That's not a good idea. Okay? 
Their reply angered Nebuchadnezzar. He gave orders for the destruction of all the wise men in Babylon. Now I think they're talking about the city, not the entire empire. But he looked around, he said, they're a bunch of worthless charlatans. I'm going to wipe them out and start over. I can't trust these guys. Give me good advice. Daniel and the other Israeli captives, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were in the general category of wise men. Now, they didn't practice astrology and all the, all the occult stuff that the Babylonian wise men did, but they were in that general category because of their education. Therefore, the decree marked them for death too. So they hadn't even been at this meeting. At that point, our focus shifts a little bit from Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel. Well, what happened with Daniel? First thing Daniel did was make petitions. He's makes, he asked for something from the king, and he asked for something from God. Verse 14 says, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Daniel spoke wisely and tactfully to the captain of the king's bodyguard, didn't he? That's something that's characteristic of him, that he knows how to handle himself, even when the pressure's on there. And he tactfully and wisely, with discretion and discernment, approaches his would-be executioner and asks, why? What's, what, why is the king so urgent about this? And so he finds out, and he asks for time. Now, isn't this remarkable? What has Nebuchadnezzar just done when he suspected the other wise men of stalling? He shut him down. He did not accede to that request. He immediately was, you're stalling and you better, you know, produce. But this time, I think Nebuchadnezzar sensed that there's some, there's some sincerity here. And so he allowed him some, uh, a special amount of time to pray. Which is the next thing Daniel did. Daniel sought from God an answer. He sought compassion, actually. Verse 17 says, Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He called a prayer meeting. And the purpose was to ask God for compassion. They note that they were not telling God what to do. They were not ordering God about. They were not blabbing and grabbing or naming and claiming or whatever. They were asking for compassion. So God have mercy on us. We're in desperate straits. And he knows where the revelation of this mystery can come from and it's not going to come from his wisdom. Then what happened? Well, strangest thing. They asked and God revealed. They made a prayer and God answered it. Daniel's immediate response, and I love this, 
wasn't to go run Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't to save even the wise man's life. His, the first thing he does is praise God. Amen. First thing he does. And it was not it was not something that was done with oh very little effort like a gee thanks Lord and then off you know this actually he composed a poem <laughs> praising God this uh, next section here is in poetry it says then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision then Daniel blessed the God of heaven Daniel said and there's poetry all the way down through verse 23 and he if you look at it in the original Aramaic let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. And you have made known to us the king's matter. You know, James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. They asked God for wisdom, God gave it. A night vision is simply a vision that comes during the night. It does not mean a dream. It's not another way of saying a dream. It was a vision. They stayed up all night praying, and God showed them the answer. Um, Daniel had the right immediate response. He praised God. The theme of that praise is God's wisdom and power. You notice that? How it starts off and it ends with God's wisdom and power. First, Daniel praises God because he controls history. God sets up and he takes down kings. We do well to remember that. You know, in political processes that, uh, you know, of course, some, some politicians are amazed to be seen whether they're there for blessing or for curse. Sometimes, but sometimes we're getting what we deserve. Sometimes we get better than we deserve. Um, I, I pray for the getting better than we deserve. But uh, Daniel praises God. You know, God sets up kings. He takes down kings. He praises God also because he's the source of wisdom and knowledge. You know, you think you're pretty smart. Well, the one who gave you those smarts came, is God. Since nothing is, is hidden from God, he knows what's in darkness even. Daniel says that the darkness is like light to God's knowledge. There are no dark places. There are no hidden places for God. Daniel thanks and praises God because not only does he possess wisdom and power, he gave it to Daniel by answering his request and revealing Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So Daniel's, first of all, very thankful. Secondly, and again, here you see the, the, the selflessness of Daniel. He could be worried about himself, but he goes and tries to rescue the wise men because they're all, they're all on the chopping block unless somebody can come forth with an answer. So verse 24 is, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the, Lord, the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. So his next priority is to halt the execution. And he did that by requesting a royal audience uh, from the king's bodyguard. Note his boldness. He knows that he knows that he knows, doesn't he? Yeah. 
I will declare the interpretation to the king. It's an astounding thing. I gotta admit, nobody's ever asked me to pray about, you know, to remember to, to you know, for God to show me a dream that somebody else had and then, you know, to interpret it. Can't imagine being asked to pray for that. That would be definitely you're on the spot, you know. And yet Daniel knew God. He has assurance. God has shown him. And he's not even wavering. Now, the next thing Daniel does is he takes this as an opportunity. Here you are, you'd think you were, you know, you would be worried about saving your neck. But Daniel sees this as an opportunity to present truth to a pagan king. And the very next thing he does, the next, next uh, five verses, are dedicated toward a testimony. Uh, Daniel 2.25 says, Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. <laughs> Arioch took credit <laughs> for finding Daniel. And Daniel actually had found him, you know, which is really funny. But that didn't bother Daniel. Daniel's not the kind of person to be worried about who gets the credit. So long as God, got, God gets the glory. So the king said to Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen in its interpretation? I think he's just a little bit incredulous. Wow, after everybody else has failed, you're really going to do this? Daniel answered the king and said, As for the conjurers, magicians, nor diviners, or the mystery, excuse me, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither the wise men, conjurers, magicians, or diviners are able to declare it to the king. No one can. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than other living men, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Daniel is really quick and careful to make sure God gets the glory. He's not, you know, you know that? Daniel saying, you know, it's not me. It's not that I'm smarter than these other guys. It's not that I'm so brainy that I can figure this out. That's not it. That is not it. What this is, is that there's a God in heaven, O king, who can reveal mysteries. And he's the one who's giving you this information. He's the one who gets the glory. He claimed that God had shown Nebuchadnezzar events leading up to the latter days. Now, this is a phrase you hit a lot in the Bible. It refers prophetically to the events before the establishment of Messiah's kingdom on earth. And Jesus Christ called that period by another term also. He called it the times of the Gentiles. Because from the fall of Jerusalem in 605 B.C. on down to the present... Gentile world power has dominated in one term or one term or another. You know? Whether it was the Romans, the Greeks, the British Empire, or whatever. You know, it's always Gentiles this and Gentiles that telling Israel what to do. Yeah. 
when Messiah establishes his kingdom, that'll be a different story. You know? So, we're in the times of the Gentiles. We're also in the latter days. Now, most of the time when we think about that, we think, well, yeah, this is immediately before, like, the rapture or something like that. But actually, there's a sense, and after Christ's first coming, from then on, we've been in the latter days. Okay, from then on, we're heading up to the establishment of Messiah's kingdom. You know, it, has, uh, it hasn't happened yet, but we're headed that way. So, we've been in the latter days. Now, we're really in the latter days now, I think. Okay, uh, as you see events fall into line that line up with prophecy, you start getting excited and you're going, yeah, I can see that even more and more. This is about to break out on us, you know. Partly that's a little scary, partly it's exciting, because I know, I've read the back of the book and I know where it ends up. Yeah, we win, <laughs> if you read the back of the book. <laughs> but Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that God had shown him future events. And it wasn't his wisdom, it was God's. It's also interesting, God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to understand what he had shown him. Some of the time we look at prophecy as being oh so symbolic and oh so convoluted and oh we can't understand that and we get afraid to study it and try to understand it. But God wants you to understand what's going to happen. That's why he revealed it. That's why such a big chunk of this book is prophetic. Because God wants you to understand. He doesn't want us to be stumbling around in the dark. So we get to the actual revelation of the dream. In verse 31, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all crushed all at the same time and became like chaff on, from the uh, summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel proceeded to describe Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Imagine the impact that had on, on Nebuchadnezzar. He's just about figured out that, yeah, they're all charlatans. None of these wise men are really so wise anyway. And then Daniel tells him his dream. Do, does Daniel have his attention? I think so. I think so. I'm sure he's listening very intently. Nebuchadnezzar saw an awesome, gigantic, splendid statue standing before him. Just imagine, if you will, that picture in your own mind. You know, there you are, penny little being, looking up at this gargantuan statue. And it's made out of four metals. Its head is gold. It has a chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs are bronze. And its legs, its legs are, are, um, are iron. Now, 
it's interesting that the value decreases from head to toe, doesn't it? And gold is worth a lot more than iron. Yeah. Say if I offer you, well, you know, I'll give you a bar of 10 pounds of gold or 10 pounds of iron. Which one do you want? Well, in today's market, I want the gold, definitely, right? Its value is greater, and its weight is greater. Specific gravity of gold is 19, silver is 11, brass is 8.5, and iron's 7.8. So, you know, definitely it's heavier from the top going down also. But the metals get harder from the top to the bottom. Gold, you can bite a chunk out of, out of pure gold with your teeth. That's where the phrase two bits came from. You, know, um, you can, you know, gold is not that strong. It's easily deformed. But iron, I mean, okay, you're going to have to have a fight for your life. Do you want a sword made out of gold or do you want a sword made out of carbon steel? I want a sword made out of carbon steel. I'll slice that gold sword in half. You know, why? Because iron is stronger. We all know that. It gets harder and stronger until we get down to the bottom. And then this, this strange thing on this thing. The feet are half clay and half iron. Ever try to mix clay and iron together? Doesn't work. I mean, can you think of any pottery form that's out there? You know, well, yeah, well, yeah we've got a half iron, half clay pot at home. And boy, they're great, you know. No, you don't find that sort of thing. Why? Because they don't stick together. You know, they're two very different substances. Matter of fact, that's where our phrase, oh yeah, you know, great men and you know, all that, but now yeah, they all have feet of clay. That's where that comes from. Okay. So here's this gargantuan statue. Gold up at the top, grading down to iron, and then the feet. Clay, pottery, and iron. How strange. How strange this is. And then, an even stranger thing happens. A stone that's cut out without human hands is gouged out from a mountain. Imagine that. You know, it's just... Whew, here comes the stone. And the stone strikes the statue on the feet on its weakest point and crushes them. And everything collapses. Kind of like, you know, we just had, uh, had the um, anniversary of 9-11. Remember when the towers came down? How horrible that was? And it started you know, and fell. Yeah, in the same way, you strike the statue and it just collapses. It just comes down. There's nothing left but dust. Now, the statue was top-heavy and it was weak in its feet. And it collapsed. But the stone, after all the dust is blown away, it said there's not even a trace left. That big statue... There's nothing left. But the stone starts growing. And it becomes a mountain. And it fills the entire earth. So Nebuchadnezzar is going, wow, what does that mean? I bet that would rob you of sleep. And if it kept happening, it would really rob me of sleep. Oh no, I dreamed it again. You know? <laughs> what does it mean? Well, Daniel presented him with the interpretation starts off, he says, Babylon is the first empire, is the first thing he tells him. This was the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation before the king. Verse 36. You, O king, are the king of kings. 
to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and he's caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar is told that God had given him his kingdom. An important thing for a pagan Gentile ruler to know. Because Nebuchadnezzar would have assumed that this, uh, by conquering uh, Judah, that that just demonstrated that the gods of Babylon were stronger than the god of, uh, god of Israel. Would think That would be the way he would think. And Daniel says, no, God gave you this kingdom. The very God who's revealing this dream to you now, when nobody else could, that God gave you your kingdom. Okay, You're the head of gold. Now, the head of gold represented then Babylon from 605 B.C. Uh, to 539 B.C. That's the time period. So, 80 some odd years. And then he said in verse 39, After you there will arise another kingdom, inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Now, when he says inferior and superior, he's not talking about the size of the domain. Historically, the next kingdom was the Persian kingdom, and the Persian kingdom was bigger than the Babylonian. But it's saying, of a lesser quality. Okay? Another kingdom will arise. Okay, well, the Persian Empire, 539 B.C. to 331 B.C. And the Persian Empire was ended by a fellow we all know. He has a ton of cities named after him. There's always an Alexandria here, Alexandria there. Alexander the Great, yep, of Macedon, yeah, uh, son of Philip, King Philip. Alexa Alexander put the Persian Empire out of its misery. <laughs> and uh, and, and then from 321 B.C. to roughly 63 B.C., the Greeks ruled the roost. Now, Alexander died young. He died in Babylon, interestingly enough, in his 30s. But uh, he had conquered all the way from northern India back to Greece and down to Egypt. So he conquered a huge swath, swath of land. And the comparison of them to bronze is a very good one to make because they used bronze for their helmets, their swords, their, their shields. It's like if you were facing the Greek army, you're looking at a wall of bronze shining in the sun in front of you there. And so that's exactly how they would have looked. Alexander, when he died, his kingdom, got, his empire got split up among four of his generals. And um, two, um, two of them became very important from the standpoint of the Holy Land because they took over uh, the area of Syria and the other one took over the area of Egypt. And uh, then they constantly vied back and forth over the Holy Land. Um, so, but we'll see plenty about that later, so I, don't, I won't dwell on that. Then there's a fourth 
empire, uh, starting in verse 40. There will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all those pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will not combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will... Um, Excuse me, they will combine in, with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. Okay, what's the next kingdom historically? Well, the Roman Empire. Uh, polished off the, uh, you know, you've all heard the story of Cleopatra and everything. She was the last one of those Greek-Egyptian rulers, and, you know, uh, the Roman Empire put an end to that. And uh, basically from 63 B.C. on, uh, ruled the roost. Now, I put a question mark there deliberately because, uh, as you'll see in a second, there's some question as when Rome finally finished up. Um, but this kingdom is spoken of as being strong as iron. Rome was noted for its use of iron weapons. Now, you faced a Roman sword, you weren't facing, you were facing steel, you weren't facing uh, bronze. So they were, they were well known for that, and it was a wall of steel that you faced when you faced the Roman army. The two legs that the statue splits into at that point remind one of the eastern and the western divisions of the Roman Empire, too. It's, it's split in half. Um, actually, that happened in uh, AD 395. Uh, Honorius and his brother Arcadius uh, were the two emperors and they divided the Roman Empire between them. I believe they were like Constantine's grandkids or something like that. Uh, they said, yeah, this is too much to administer. Let's have one emperor you know, handling the east, one the west. Now, how did that go? Well, the east turned out to be a lot stronger than the west. Uh, in AD 476, the western Roman Empire fell when the Germanic tree, uh, chief um, Odo Asser deposed the last Western Roman Emperor, Romulus Augustus, and uh, he had only been in office one year, so he didn't last long anyway. Uh, he had moved away from Rome and uh, had set up in a town called Ravenna in northern Italy that they thought was easier to, def to defend. And it was kind of sad because by the time they kicked him out of office, he was basically the mayor of Ravenna. This is the emperor of the Western Empire reduced to the mayor of one town. Um, so 476, right? That's when Rome ended. Well, what, what about the East? What about the East? Eastern Roman Empire continued until Tuesday, May 29th, 1453. That was uh, when Const Emperor Constantine XI was defeated by the Turkish Sultan Mehmed II. And Constantinople fell. 1453. Gosh, that's just a few years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Yeah. 1492. Yeah, 1492. That's right. <laughs> okay. So, gee, the West fell, but the East kept on kept on trucking. There was a Roman Empire. But before the East fell in 14 uh, 1453. 
something else happened. Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne Holy Roman Emperor, Imperator Romanorum, on Christmas Day, A.D. 800, at Rome. So, gee, yeah, you've got Western Empire falls, Eastern Empire keeps on trucking, Western Empire gets reconstituted, Eastern Empire eventually falls, but the West is going again. And that runs all the way down to 1806. The last Holy Roman Emperor was the Austrian uh, Habsburg family, uh, Francis II. Okay, he abdicated the throne in 1806 during the Napoleonic Wars. But, what about that? Oh, so it ended in 1806. Well, not exactly. Because Napoleon crowned himself Emperor on December 2nd. 1804. Took the crown from the Pope and said, I'll put it on his own head. Um, the Austrian Empire, you know, Napoleon didn't last that long. He was all over and done with by 1815. But the Austrian Empire continued to call its emperors Kaiser or Caesar until 1918. Carl I was the last. <laughs> Carl I was the last. Hmm. Uh, and the Germans can follow suit and, until William the, Wilhelm II, uh, 1918, and uh, that was the end of World War I. Kaiser, Kaiser Bill. Okay. But Kaiser is just a corruption of Caesar. <coughs> Hitler <coughs> saw Germany as the Third Reich, the Third Kingdom, the successor to Rome, Roman, Holy Roman Empire, and the Third Reich. Um, Benito Mussolini called, called himself first marshal of the empire. So they all have pretensions to being revo uh, a revival of Rome in some way. That takes us down to 1945. I've got to skip a few years, and then you start getting into the uh, common market, which gave rise to the European economic community, which gave rise to the EU now, European Union. Um, but um, in all of their thinking, there's been a lot of undercurrent of Rome also. A former EU Commission President, Romano Prodi, uh, he said a lot of things actually, kind of made my, the hair stand up on the back of my neck, but one of them was this, rarely in the course of history does an opportunity like this present itself, Mr. Prodi told the European Parliament. For the first time since the fall of the Roman Empire, we have the opportunity to unite Europe. This time it will not be by force of arms, but on the basis of shared ideals and agreed common rules. So, the idea of the Roman Empire never seems to have gotten very far away from the surface in European thinking. It's a little creepy, you know. But, that continuity is there. Now, does it divide? Does it disintegrate? Yeah. And the feet, iron mixed with clay. Okay, so it gets less and less cohesive as time goes on, but it's still there. It doesn't go away. In its final form, it's going to have ten toes on those feet. And Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 and 24 indicates the final stage of that empire is going to be a ten-nation federation. There will be ten units that it will be divided into. Interestingly, uh, the European Union Commission currently has seven vice presidents over the 27 commissioners. So during Romano Prodi's term, the number was nine. It was almost ten. 
Um, so it's like, hmm, you know, that's one possible scenario. But, you know, some other ten-nation form can always arise in the future. I know at one point we were all excited because the common market had ten nations in it. Well, now it's got 27, and that kind of shot that. So there's, we're not sure exactly how that's going to arrange, but there's going to be some sort of ten-unit or ten-kingdom confederation that uh, will be the ultimate form that will be the revival of the Roman Empire. It's going to be strong. It's like iron. It's going to be militarily strong, but it's going to be brittle. It's not going to be cohesive. But there's another kingdom. In verse 44, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out from the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So in the days of that final form of the Roman Empire, God's going to set up his kingdom. And he's going to put an end to all, all human kingdoms. To a Babylonian who thought conquering meant that your God's stronger than the gods of the people you conquered, that means that God, Daniel's God, is superior over all the gods of all the pagan empires. Because God's going to put them all to an end. Note that this is a sudden event. It's not a gradual process. It's not that we're slowly Christianizing the world and things get better and better and, you know, and then one day it's, it's great. You know, that's not how it works. That Gentile world power is going to be immediately followed by the kingdom of heaven. And it's, it, the language Daniel uses is it's going to crush and put an end to all these human governments. The God of heaven doesn't set up his kingdom until after the destruction of the Gentile world system. Now Nebuchadnezzar ruled for a long time. 43 years. That was a long run for a monarch back then. It was a long run for anybody to live back then. 605 B.C. to 562. But Jesus Christ is going to reign forever. Forever. Daniel explained the establishment of God's kingdom is certain. It will happen. And Jesus applied this scripture to himself. He said, uh, he said in Matthew 21 and Luke 20, He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Speaking of himself. So, the end result of this, the Israeli captives were promoted. Uh, verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts and made him ruler over the province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel greatly as a representative of his God. And he honored God. 
But he did stop short, didn't he? Of saying that he was the one and only God. He didn't do that. He's still a polytheist. He says he's a God of gods. Okay? So, I'm, you know, the king's going, I'm willing to admit your God's the best one I've seen. <laughs> you know, he's the top, but he's not the only. So he's not quite there. But he promoted Daniel, put him over the province of Babylon, that, where the capital city is. He, uh, he was able to bring his three, three friends in as vice administrators. And his rise, we can only call meteoric. This is a guy who is in his tw early 20s. And he's already, you know, in charge of Babylon, in charge of the think tanks. You know, this is an amazing position. Now, how do we apply this? What can we do with this? Well, no matter what the outward circumstances, God is in control. Daniel's life, as long as God had something for him to do, was never in danger. Never. You are indestructible until God's through with you. I think we can also see that asking God for wisdom and giving Him the glory, that's a strategy. That's a, good, that's a winning strategy, you know. Because you ask him for wisdom, he gives it. He gives it. But give him the glory. And then finally, God's in control of history. Where is history headed? It's headed to the kingdom of God. God is in control. You look around at all the political mess and all the stuff in the, on the world stage and this country getting this bomb and that sort of thing. God is in control. It never spun out of his control. He is the Lord of history. History is his story. Okay. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord God, we acknowledge that you are the one who is wise and powerful. You are the one who knows all the secrets and all the mysteries. And all wisdom that we have is a gift from you. Lord, we acknowledge that you are in control and we trust you to bring history to the conclusion of the kingdom of God. And we thank you that that kingdom is coming. In Jesus' name, amen.